Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Nashville Life. For those of you who are coming for the first time, glad you're here. I pray you enjoy your time with us. Hopefully you've gotten to meet some people. Maybe you even were brought by somebody and you already know someone coming in. But uh, regardless, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to get into uh, the message. Uh, I'm Alvin, by the way, for those of you who are here for the first time. Uh, I'm lead pastor here, and I'm just really glad to be able to share the word with you. Um, this is our second Sunday of the month of March. We are on our road to celebrating uh, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and I'm excited for the word that we have today. Before we get into it, we've got a, a pre-word declaration that we, that we like to do here. Um, so repeat after me. The word of God is the bread of life. May my heart conceive it and my life achieve it. The more I give life, the more I'll receive. The more I live life, the more I'll believe. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. So this is a series for the month of March. We're calling it Designated Drivers. And um, I was saying last week, when, when you're assigned DD for the night or a designated driver for the night, you've got, you've got one job, and that stays sober. You've got one job, and that stays sober so that those who are under the influence can get home safely. And uh, our definition of designated driver for this series um, is people who have been given the honor and responsibility of remaining sober for a world under a harmful influence. Being designated driver comes with great honor because it means that everybody is trusting you with their lives to get home, but it also comes with responsibility. And while you're out, you can have a good time, you can socialize, but you've, you can't let your fun be at the expense of the trust that's been given to you to get the people home that can't drive. Um, and there's so many parallels of the designated driver and the believer, and uh, we want to talk about that. I believe that God has appointed all of us to this call of being a light and a beacon, uh, uh, a vessel of sobriety and clarity and direction for a lost world. There are a lot of people who are lost they're unsure, they're confused, and I truly believe that everyone who professes Jesus Christ, even if it's only been one day, you have stepped into a responsibility and an honor to be that, that, that beacon and that light for those who need it. First Peter, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And anyone who professes Christ, this is their testimony. They were in darkness. All of us at one point were in darkness in one some, some sort of way. I'm not saying that everybody was addicted to drugs. I'm not saying that everybody was in a dark alley somewhere, you might have been in church, 
but just unbelief is darkness. Doubt is darkness. So I'm not, don't think that just because you don't have this epic story of how you were, I don't know, whatever, fill in the blank, that you were not in darkness. I was raised in church Wednesday, Sunday night, and I was still just as much as in darkness as someone who had never stepped foot in church. So we were all at one point in darkness, and it's the grace of God that called us out of that darkness into his marvelous light. When we were saved, we were saved with a purpose. My pastors in Australia used to always say, it's not so much what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved for. And I believe that whenever we are saved, it is with a purpose in mind. It's a, it's a calling to be essentially uh, promoters for the same God that saved us. This scripture in 1 Peter that I read says, He's, he called you for his own possession that you may. So that you may is the purpose. That's the why. It's so important. Oh, my gosh. I just came from a, a round table of some pastors this week, and, and they were talking how it was so important to never forget the why. When we forget the why, we get so lost. And some of us are saved and have forgotten the why, and we're actually lost in our salvation. We've forgotten the why. We remember that we were saved. We, def we definitely know there was a change, but we forgot the purpose for this. So that you, the one that was saved, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out. So we become promoters. We were saved to be promoters. In business, you've got promoters and you've got detractors. Promoters are the ones saying, you should try this. Detractors are saying, run away, try somewhere else. And when we, when we are saved, we are saved to become promoters, proclaiming the excellencies, the, the, the great reviews of the one who saved us. We see this a lot with brands and with products. You see the infomercials for, you know, for Proactive or, or Weight Watchers or, or Rogaine. And it's people who had an issue and a product helped them. And now they become promoters. They become a voice for this product, for other people who have the same issue. That's what everyone who is saved becomes. We are called to now be promoters of the excellent one who saved us from death, from sin, from hell, from the grave. We see this in scripture. Promoters. Moses has an encounter with God. Goes back to Egypt, promoter, to talk about the goodness of God and to lead people out. We see this with the demon-possessed man, the one that was in the graveyard. He has an encounter with Jesus. He wants to continue follow Je following Jesus and going with him on his missions. Jesus says, no, stay here. Go back to your town and promote. <laughs> Go back to your town and talk about what happened to you. When they see the same man that was naked and cutting himself, and full of demons, now sound, walking straight, talking normal, they're going to realize that I am someone that they need to pay attention to. The woman at the well, she has an encounter with Jesus. She goes back to her town and says, I met a very excellent person, someone who told me everything about my life. 
Paul, he has an encounter with Jesus. He goes back to the same unbelievers that he was leading saying, I was wrong. Jesus is excellent. He saved my life. Me. I came back after my encounter and was, guys, guys, this is better than we realized. There is more. He is more excellent. We all know that God is good, but he is better than all of us, including me, thought. We become promoters of the excellent God who saved us. And this is not based on a personality type. This is based on a transformation. You don't have to be an extrovert to have a transformation. You don't have to be a four or a six on the whatever Enneagram to, to proclaim that God is good. Please stop thinking that's not, that's not me. That's, I mean, do you have, are you saved? Is that not you too? I'm saved. I just can't talk about it. Who said that? But the devil. He says, let the redeemed of the Lord, what? Talk about it. You've got to promote it. You've got to promote him. This is the reason. This is the purpose. And I'm not saying everyone has to do it the same way. That is where it gets different. You know, because someone is a little more chill about it. They, they talk about it, but it's not. Some people are singing about it. Some people are, are writing about it. Some people are talking just to their neighbor about it. Some people are having a whole meeting about it. The point is we should be proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us. And, guys, it's scripture. Like, this is it. I didn't make this up. And, therefore, I don't have the right to change it. Our call is to proclaim and promote the goodness of God so that others can say, sign me up. With this promotion, with this call, comes what I'm calling the, the sobering effect. Jesus carries a very sobering effect, partly because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does three things, and all three of them start with the word convict. <laughs> he says he convicts the world of sin, he convicts the world of righteousness, and he convicts the world of judgment. And Jesus carries that. And if you carry Jesus, you carry that. And some of us have realized that it's not always fun having this sobering effect about your life. You're the guy that they don't want to come to the party. <laughs> You're the guy that they don't want to gossip around. You're the guy that's not going to indulge in the dirty joke. Man, that guy, I get around him and I just, what is that? It's the sobering effect of Jesus. We always tease my mom. My mom thinks everybody is awesome. And me, Ashley, and dad, we, we see sometimes how people really are. And we'll tell my mom, she goes, oh, no. And people don't, re mom doesn't realize that people don't act like themselves around you. She carries a sobering effect. And everyone gets real nice and real righteous. And then when she leaves the room, 
Talk to her band and singers. They've got so many stories of horribly mean people that mom still just will die saying they are the nicest people. When you leave, it's a sobering effect. It's a sobering effect. It's like, why do I feel like I got to? Not everybody wants that. And this is what comes with Jesus. And the, what I love about you all is you guys want that. You guys are driving, spending time, coming to church, knowing that the Lord is going to speak to your heart, knowing that he's going to convict an area of your life, and you still keep coming. And I just want to commend you because the world is running away from the very thing that you're running towards. So be encouraged that there's actual, an actual hunger for sobriety. There's an actual hunger for conviction. There's an actual hunger for maturity and growth. And I want you guys to know that that is not something you should take lightly. Y'all are voluntarily here. And it's for this very thing right here. We are on our way to a huge day for the world where they celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And obviously, we celebrate it every day. So it's not like it's that different for us. But it's different for the world, which is why so many people come to church. So for Nashville Life, like, don't think it's strange that you're not, you're not like, oh, he's, he's risen. It's like, well, we say that right now. He's risen now. But for us, the reason why it's a huge day is that we get to really invite some people to church. I'll let you know right now, there is the least resistance to coming to church on Easter. So for those of you who are looking for a, a, an opportunity to get someone to come to church and hear the gospel. To me, that's what Easter represents to me. It's not the day that I recognize that he's risen. It's the day that my friends will be willing to recognize it with me. So that's the purpose. So if you're a part of Nashville Life, it's invite day. Invite people to church. But for us to be in that position, we've got to be sober. We've got to care. We can't be distracted. We can't be messing around with idols and with things that are going to keep us indifferent to the need for people to be in here. So that's why for the whole month of March, I said we're going to talk about sobriety because the church, we don't care about souls until we're sober. We don't care about non-believers. Like we say we do, but we don't really care. We can go weeks without even thinking about inviting someone, let alone actually doing it. We need to become sober. We need to be brought back to what this life is ultimately really about. And nothing does that more than the crucifixion of Christ. Nothing brings the sobering effect. Nothing brings us back to reality as believers more than talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm going to point out two things that the crucifixion does. It reveals the evil capabilities of mankind, and it reveals the righteous capabilities of mankind. So I'm going to give you some, some, some negative news about who we are, but I'm also going to give you some really positive news about who we are, and both are equally sobering. First, we're going to talk about how the crucifixion reveals the evil capabilities of mankind. 
Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Him, talking about Jesus. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. He sought, he looked for it, an opportunity to betray him. First thing I want to point out is this scripture says that he was one of the 12. Jesus had 12 disciples. So for him to be in that group, it meant that he was one of Jesus' best friends. He was the one that ate with him the most. He was the one that talked with him the most. He was the one that traveled with him the most. He's the one that, that talked about the scriptures with him the most. He was of the 12 that spent the most time in ministry with Jesus. The next thing I want to point out is not only did Judas sell Jesus out for money, but he initiated the betrayal. He actually went to the chief priests. Imagine initiating it. It's one thing to be a victim of it. Like, imagine initiating the betrayal of your best friend. Number three, this wasn't an impulsive, momentary act of sin. It wasn't like temporary insanity. Like, he thought this out. He actually meditated on this. He looked for a chance to do it. It was planned. It was planned. This wasn't just some fit of rage and he just came to, oh my gosh, what happened? Y'all, this was an ironed out plan from someone who saw Jesus, who was around him, who knew him. This was a premeditated, thought through betrayal. The scriptures clarify that Satan entered the heart of Judas so that he could do this. And I'm bringing this up to show what is possible if Satan enters your heart. I'm really trying to humanize Judas a bit because it's not like just this bad egg that was just this bad guy. It was a man like you and me, who actually followed Jesus. But Satan entered his heart. One thing I've learned about sin is sin always takes you further than you want it to go, and it stays longer than you want it to stay. You cannot negotiate. It always takes you further than you ever intended to go, and it stays way longer than you ever thought it would stay. I don't think Judas ever thought that that could happen. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. In other words, guard your heart above everything else. Because if you leave an open door for Satan to enter your heart, you will find yourself in places that you never thought possible. 
one of the parts I also find sobering is that Judas wasn't the only person who was against Jesus. It's always sobering to me whenever I read about the crucifixion, how many people wanted him dead. It's not like in the movies that we've seen, like different, like, I don't know, there's like a bad guy or his sidekick or like a gang of people who are just bad. We're talking about a crowd. But let's get the attention. Judas gets a lot of the, a lot of the heat. But a lot of people wanted Jesus dead. And believe it or not, most of them were believers in God and self-proclaimed believers in the scriptures. John 19, verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, they, not Judas, not the head priest, they crucify him, crucify him. Pilate, who's not even a believer, said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The non-believers are saying, he didn't do anything wrong, but man, y'all want this guy dead. Okay, y'all, I find no fault. Pilate found no fault and no guilt in Jesus, yet the crowd, the chosen ones, said crucify him. Now, this isn't a stone that I'm throwing to the Jews. Because I said last week, anybody who has the error of blaming anyone for the death of Jesus when it was your sin and my sin that took him there, we cannot point a finger because on that cross, Alvin's sin was right on his shoulders. Pastor Cece's sin was on his elbow. Moriel's sin was on his ankle. Camille's sin was on his back. All of our sins took Jesus to the cross. So this is not a, throw, a, a stone I'm throwing to the Jews, but I am acknowledging that you can be raised on Bible stories, participate in multiple religious activities a week, and still have hostility in your heart towards Jesus. We know it's true because it's been us before. <laughs> We have to grow more vigilant over our own hearts. We can't be like Israel. So much, they put so much stock in their history. They put so much stock in their, their, their status that they neglected the very thing that controls their lives, and that's their heart. How many of us are putting so much stock in the, the prayer that we prayed or the team that we serve on, the life group that we lead, and we neglect our heart? We forget the upkeep. We put so much emphasis and false confidence on these markers that we have that show that we are with God. 
And don't, I praise God for the day you got saved. I praise God for the day that you spoke in tongues for the first time. I praise God for the time that you learned that you could prophesy. I praise God for the day that you signed up to serve on team and you opened up your life group. But if any of these things negate the heart and the upkeep and the maintenance that it takes to protect it, you will find yourself being a life group leader who hates Jesus. You will find yourself being a worship leader who hates him. Because you forgot that it really is all about guarding this. And you'll have the status and you'll have the resume of someone who loves God. But you'll have a heart of someone who says crucify him. It's the heart that is the truest determiner of our relationship with God. James chapter 4, I'm going to skip to James. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 4 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Adultery means you're married. This is a message to people who are in the church. You're not committing adultery if you're single. Adultery is only if you're married. This scripture about coveting and murder or talk is to the bride of Christ. People who are married to Jesus, the church is married to Jesus. James 4 is to the spirit-filled believer whose status is married. I'm committed to Jesus. You cannot commit adultery if you're single. James called the church adulterous people, people who are married but doing stuff on the side. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm going to bring this down to earth because I know I'm using heavy language, hate and things like that. And we still are kind of conditioned that if we're not going, I hate Jesus, that we don't hate Jesus. Newsflash, you don't have to hate Jesus to hate Jesus. You don't have to hate Jesus to hate Jesus. Let me explain. All you have to do is love the world. This is the deception. This is how it happens. It's the trap. We think we have to actually intentionally say, you know what? I hate Jesus to hate Jesus. Satan knows that. So he goes, let's do this. He knows the word better than we do, just so you know. Friendship with the world will make them hate God. So let me just make them love the world a lot. And without knowing it, they will start to hate the very one they profess they love. Paul says to not be ignorant of the enemy's devices. So I'm trying to pull the cover from what he's doing to a lot of us. Loving the world equals hating Jesus. And I want to explain this because a lot of us can be confused about the phrase loving the world because the most famous scripture, come on, John 3, 16, 
God so loved the world, right? So how is loving the world hating Jesus, but God loves the world who loves Jesus, okay? We got to know the scriptures, guys. We, we, we've been paraphrasing a bit too much sometimes. And I'm a, I'm a paraphraser, but we, we got to read the fine print. The full scripture of John 3.16 is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love for the world is paired with seeing that it is perishing. God's love for the world is paired with seeing that it is perishing. So he gave his most valuable possession so that people could be saved from it. That's the full thought. God's not just going, oh, I just love the world. Oh, look at the world. Oh, I love the world. He's going, oh my God. Oh me. <laughs> oh me. Oh my. The world is on fire. The world is perishing. Ah. Ah. Jesus, you got to go. You got to go save the world because it's dying, it's decaying, it's smelling. We got to save it. That's the love of the world of God. Not, you know, the world really does have a point. I mean, the world, the church could really learn a lot from the world. I mean, the world, when you love the philosophy of the world, when you love the systems of the world, Rest assured, hatred towards God is right at your doorstep. I'm telling you, you don't have to hate him to hate him. You just have to have an appreciation and an admiration, even a jealousy of the world. And that's the, that's the trap. The love of the world makes you an enemy of God. Because it counteracts God's vision to save the world. He's wanting to pull people out, and y'all are wanting to go in. He's going in just to pull people out. We're going, oh man, that song. And we are loving it. And he went in just to pull people out. And we're going in to pull up a chair. People who don't see the world as needing a savior are not helping gather people out of it. And Jesus said, again, he said it, not me. I'm just repeating him. Jesus says, if you're not helping him gather, you're helping the enemy scatter. He says, if you are not helping him gather people, you are helping the enemy scatter people. I'm telling you, I know you wish it exists. I wish it existed. We wish there was a middle ground. We just wish it. We wish it every day. I don't think we realize how much we wish there was a such thing as the neutral place. I'm not helping the devil. I'm not, I'm not helping God, but I'm not helping the devil. Come on. Surely there's something. Come on, Alvin. You're telling me if I'm not helping God, I'm helping the devil? Yes. 
And I'm not telling you. Your Lord and Savior is telling you. You don't have to like me. You, you committed to love him. You chose to be with him. <laughs> I didn't choose that for you. I'm just telling you what he said. If you're not helping him gather people for the harvest, you're not just doing nothing. That's a deception. We think, well, I'm not sinning, but I'm not doing, I'm, not, I'm just doing nothing. He goes, no, you are helping that sucker scatter people from me. That's what he said. Again, I didn't make it up. But it's the truth. And if we want him, which I believe we do because we're here, we must embrace it. Okay. Sobriety is aiming to love the world the way God does, seeing that it is perishing and offering ourselves to reconcile people to Jesus. If you want to love the world like John 3.16, you got to see first that it's perishing. And you can't just see it and go, man, look at it, it's perishing. It's not a movie. <laughs> you can't just have popcorn and go, man, this world is... <laughs> you have to see it and then offer yourself to be a part of the solution. God didn't love, God didn't love the world. See, it was perishing and just said it's perishing. He did something about it. He said, and not only did he do something about it, he did the most unimaginable sacrifice. His one prized possession, he sacrificed it. Him, Jesus. Now, don't don't hear what I'm not saying. To see that the world is perishing, I'm not saying we sit on the corner with a picket sign and say the world is dying or you're going to hell. Like, I'm not saying that because that's not sobriety either. Paranoia is not sobriety. Being so consumed that the world is perishing that you turn into a basket case and you can't even function. Again, guys, we have examples. Jesus was able to be in the midst of a place that he knows was perishing and still chill out and still be enjoyable and still tell interesting stories and still eat lunch and take naps. Don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not a license for some of you all to turn into another thing. That's another issue. And that's being a repellent to non-believers. Jesus is, he's perfect. He's perfect. He shows that it's possible to be at rest and still alert. You can be alert and vigilant and still at rest. We don't think that stuff is possible. Human beings, I'm learning in my own self, we, we have, uh, we're, pretty, we're pretty sad when it comes to balance. We know how to do one or the other. <laughs> we know how to sleep 
and be lazy or be workaholics. We know how to be all the way this or all the way that. And Jesus shows that you can see that the world is dying but still befriend it in a way where it's just, I mean, just read, just read him. Just read his stories. He was amazing. He was amazing. We have an example. I'm, a, I'm getting ahead of myself. Last part, the crucifixion reveals the righteous capabilities of man. I got some good news for you guys. <laughs> I know the first part was how evil we can be, but now I want to talk about how righteous we can be. And this is going to really set people free because some of you guys truly have doomed yourselves. Like you've cursed yourself. You don't think that you'll ever be able to get over that mountain. You don't think that you're ever going to be able to change. And the crucifixion reveals that righteousness is something that you are capable of. And that is because of Jesus. He is the prototype of the righteous human. He embodies the fruit of the spirit perfectly. He's bold and meek. At the same time, we don't know that that can exist. We, we subconsciously think I gotta be bold or, or meek. Bold means, ah, and meek just means, no. he knew how to do both. He was down to earth, but still heavenly minded. He's amazing. He was perfect, totally in the spirit, but feet solid on the ground. Knew how to fish, knew how to cook fish, knew how to. He was, he was a normal person even though he was God. Like, who does that? He was a son, but he had the father's heart at the same time. Like, what is that? He was a best friend, but at the same time, he had the heart of a father with his friends. We think you got to be one or the other. How, my life group, I'm their friend, but how can I be their leader too? It's been done before. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's not impossible for all of you who are life group leaders and you've got buddies and friends. How, a lot of us think, well, I can't do this. I've got to be one or the other. Jesus was both. He was a best friend, but he also was an incredible leader. He was submitted to authority, yet he walked in authority. We think you have to pick one. In order for me to truly walk in my authority, I cannot submit to my pastor. My pastor is preventing me from walking in the authority that God has given me. And, we, and, we, and we, we paint this picture like you have to either be submitted or in charge. And Jesus showed that we could do both. He was submitted, heavily submitted to his father, but was a boss. So authority, so much authority, but yet so submitted. Jesus shows us that things are possible that we didn't think were possible with human beings. And don't just say, well, he was Jesus. He threw that argument out. Have y'all seen the movie Black Panther? Where they were going to fight, and in order for it to be a fair fight, he had to extract the power from him so it could be a fair fight. That's essentially what Jesus did. Philippians 2, 6 through 7. Talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is why you can't say, well, that was just Jesus and I'm not Jesus. Jesus intentionally made himself totally man so that you wouldn't have the argument to discount yourself from what he was able to do. He knows us. Let me lay all this down because my whole point is to show human beings what is possible. I'm coming to be the example of what you can be. He thought everything through. He laid down his deity so he could walk and do this sinless as a man so that we can go, a man was able to do it. And this is either really encouraging to us or really <laughs> inconvenient for us because some of it, used, we can use it as a, a just convenient excuse because if it's, if it's impossible for a human being, then you're not accountable to it. If turning the other cheek is just impossible, then you don't have to do it. If laying the hands on the sick and seeing them recovered is impossible for a man to do, you have an excuse and a really handy dandy one. Jesus says, no, I'm going to walk fully as a man. I'm going to be a toddler. I'm going to be in kindergarten. And then I'm going to go to school. Y'all, he went to Bible school. He went to Hebrew school, even though he was God. I'm going to go through all of it. I'm going to get baptized. I got people in our church who don't even want to get baptized. I'm already a believer. What? Jesus did it. If Jesus did it, you do it. He was God. He let a mortal man baptize him. That's how committed he was to being like us. He did the whole thing. He didn't cut any corners. He didn't just say, well, I'm just going to shoot to age 27. I'm just going to shoot. Like, he, he didn't do these super uh, power things that he could have done. Everything he did was something that a man can do after him or a woman. And again, Jesus lay, he emptied himself. It was voluntary. To lay down voluntary your power is totally different than having it taken away. No one took Jesus' power away, just so you know. Don't get it twisted. He could have snapped his fingers at any time and flew up out of there into another galaxy if he wanted to. He chose to walk the world like us, walk the earth like us. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest. Sorry, I'm going fast. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Guys, he actually allowed himself to feel all the temptations that we feel and overcame it so that we can say, if Jesus overcame it, I can overcome it. If Jesus endured it, I can do it. And he knew that we wouldn't be able to say that if we could just go, well, he was, I mean, he was Jesus. No, he goes, no, I got, they've got to understand that I felt everything they feel. Every mental attack, every emotional attack, every attack against your life, every bored day, every tired day, every fatigued day, every frustrated day, Jesus walked through all of it so that when you go through it, you can say, yet he didn't sin. So, you know, I'm actually going to not sin either. I'm not going to respond that way. Jesus did it. 
so I can do it. He didn't come to the earth to be separated from us. He could have done that from heaven. The whole point of coming to the earth is so he could relate with us and we could relate with him. Jesus' crucifixion broke a new world record for what is possible with man. And you know how world records work, right? Have you ever noticed that every world record raises the bar to the point where the Guinness Book of World Records has to be updated all the time? Because one record shows, okay, this is what, this is, what is humanly possible. And then five years later, some kid breaks it. And now there's a new standard. So now you can run a mile in this amount of time. Now you can climb a mountain in this amount of time. Now you can get this high in the air. And every time a record is broken, it reveals a new capacity for human beings that 60 years ago we didn't think was possible. Every record-breaking moment raises the bar for what is possible for a human being. Jesus broke the record of what was possible for mankind. He broke the record for how to have confidence beyond what you thought was possible, how to have self-control beyond what you thought was possible, how to have courage beyond what you thought was humanly possible, how to have generosity beyond what you thought was humanly possible, how to have authority beyond what you thought was humanly possible, how to submit beyond what you thought was humanly possible. Most of us can't even submit to come to church regularly, let alone submit to die a crucifixion, death. Jesus shows that you could submit to the point of being crucified for a crime you didn't commit. I'm trying to let you guys know the standard. This is why he's not moved by our, our wanting him to relent on submitting for just basic things at work. God, you see me. And we pour out. He goes, I, I broke a record that shows that mankind can die for a death for a crime they didn't even commit. That's the new world record for what is humanly possible. So if that is the new world record, and we think that we're reaching our limits here, the world record is, let's say it's five minutes for a mile. And we're like 45 minutes a mile. I can't do it. I can't do it. He goes, yes, you can because I broke the record. And my grace is sufficient for you. It's going to give you the ability to walk like I walk, talk like I talked, love like I love, give like I give, submit like I submit, cast out devils like I cast out devils. I'm going to skip this part. Matthew 26, 48 to 54 says, it's speaking about, um, I won't skip it. Pastor Cece said don't skip. I won't skip. Verse 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying the one, I mean, Judas, jeez, at the same time, me, I mean, I've been Judas. I promise you I have. I have intentionally thought out ways 
to hurt Jesus. And it wasn't because I wanted to hurt Jesus, my thinking through to please myself. Judas was chasing that silver. Needing the money to provide for your family is a lot sweeter sounding than I want to kill Jesus. I deserve this extra cash is a lot sweeter than I want to kill Jesus. Judas just wanted that money. But his desire for money allowed him to be a part of crucifying Jesus. So he gave him a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. Hey, pastor. I'm sorry. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? So it must be so. The level of confidence, the level of peace, even while he's about to be taken. I mean, Jesus showed a level of peace while he was going to be slaughtered. He is, the crucifixion of Jesus is one tutorial on how to truly be anxious for nothing. This is, the, this is the standard, guys, that, that he's made available to us. Be anxious for nothing. When Jesus said it, he meant nothing. A lot of us have things in our life where we're like, surely I can be anxious for this. I know he said nothing, but I mean, hello, I just got diagnosed with, I mean, surely there's a pass for me to be anxious for this, God. After all, the doctor did say it. Jesus said I was anxious. I was anxious for nothing. I, was, I wasn't even anxious for being crucified. Even in his arrest, knowing he was about to be crucified, he was still chill. Why? Not because he was unemotional, not because he wasn't human, but he believed that if I call my father, he will send legions of angels to pull me out of this. God is still in control, basically. Even in the midst of this arrest and this crucifixion, my father is still in charge. Therefore, I can chill out. Not because I want to be crucified. I'd rather not. But I don't have to be anxious like something's going wrong, like this world is being lost, like, like God doesn't exist anymore. He truly practiced what he preached. <laughs> I mean, if anything could test the word nothing, I believe it's being crucified on the cross. 
He never questioned his ability to appeal to his father. So he didn't respond anxiously or erratically, unlike his disciples. This is what we have to watch out for. I really want to say this, so I'm glad I didn't skip. Um, we had zealots like Peter, you know, who took the sword and cut the man's ear off in the name of Jesus. And we have to watch out for this, guys. No matter how holy the cause is, if you operate out of your flesh, it will be tainted. So often, negative people get on positive bandwagons and it still ends up being negative. Do you know that every terrorist group believes they're doing something honorable? Do you believe that every zealot and cult member believe they're doing something beneficial? Something that's going to change the world? Something that's going to make something better? Jesus is telling us, when he, tells, when he told the disciple to put his sword back, even though he knew it came from wanting to save him, but when you do it by fleshly means, it will not accomplish the will of God. Jesus is telling us in that passage when he corrects the disciple that in efforts of supporting him or his cause, we don't have to, nor should we ever resort to negative, violent, antagonizing, retaliating methods. In efforts of supporting him or something that we believe in, I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in this church. We think since we're supporting righteousness, we can get rude, we can get condescending, we can get cocky, we can get ugly, and we think that since it's for Christ, we can, we can handle it however we want, and we end up getting like the disciples or we start cutting people's ears, injuring people in defense of Jesus. And Jesus said, don't do that. He took the ear, put it back. Sorry, sorry, young man. Finish your arrest. My disciples are a little bit in their flesh. A lot in their flesh. I mean, could cut a man's ear off. That's not a little bit. Guys, don't try to help Jesus out with your negative, fleshly, devilish ways. It's not helping him. You're making it worse. He, he's, for some of us, he's going, so that person, that Facebook post or whatever, you, that person, he's going, here's your ear back. I'm sorry. They're still in their flesh. They still, they still think they can kind of keep the hood with them, even though they are. I hate that shirt, half hood, half holy. I hate that shirt. I hate that shirt. I'm holy, but don't cross me because I'm from Detroit. Like, don't do that. Don't bring your fleshly humanity and cake it on with Jesus and think that you're doing something. You can't do that. You're cutting people's ears off and they're bleeding going, oh, Jesus, oh, man, he, he cut my ear off. He goes, that wasn't me. That was them. Here, here you go. 
Instead, again, a new standard, righteous capabilities, Jesus did, he blessed his enemies. He healed the very person that was arresting him to get crucified. He healed him. He put his ear back and healed it perfectly and then continued with the process of being arrested by him. He blesses his enemies. I know we think that it's impossible. Well, that's just Jesus, you know. No, it's not just Jesus. You better hope it's not just Jesus because if it's just Jesus, it's going to be just Jesus with the Father for eternity. We want to separate ourselves from Jesus, but we want to be with Jesus reigning with him in heaven. That's what you call fair weather fan. I want to be one with Jesus as long as it's in heaven. But when it comes to being one with Jesus on blessing my enemies and being, oh, no, that's just him. That's not, ooh, that's not, that's, that's him. He says, if you deny me, I will deny you. Talk about, I mean, Jesus said that. We can't pick and choose when we want to identify with Jesus. We can't be selective. I'll identify him when it comes to turning water into wine. I'll identify with him when it comes to healing for my family. I'll identify him when it takes, you know, taking coin out of the fish and money producing from, you know, okay. But healing the person that's about to take me away from my family, oh, no. That might have been Jesus, but that's not me. My name is Alvin. My name is not. (laughs) We do these things. But then on the scriptures where it says we will be with him in paradise, we go, oh, yeah, I'm with Jesus there. We can't do that. It's just not an option. We're just not given that option. Again, the crucifixion reveals a greater level of humanity. It shows what is possible for a man. A man did this. A man like you and me did this. This is why it's so sobering to meditate on the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. Because you get delivered. You get delivered from self-righteousness and condemnation at the same time. I mean, what does that? It saves you from feeling horrible about yourself. And then saves you from thinking too much of yourself at the same time. You get saved from humanism and cynicism at the same time. You get delivered from thinking that everybody is just awesome and we all have this inner light innately as human beings. But then you get saved from feeling like everybody's out to get you. And everybody's going to betray you. The crucifixion of Jesus convicts us of how sinful we are without Jesus, but also how righteous we are with Jesus. The man that healed, the man that was was about to arrest him is living in your heart right now. Everyone who has Jesus, he's with you. He's made you like him. Next week, I want to talk about the crucifixion 
and how it reveals the severity of sin. But I want to end today by giving you a chance to respond to the two things that the crucifixion does, and that is it reveals the evil capabilities of us, but also reveals the righteous capabilities of us. The last scripture, and this is really the end, Romans 3, 23, verse 26, I mean 23 through 26. This is a great ending because this is really not the ending. Of it. Like tomorrow, like next week is the finish, so this is just kind of like a pause. This is a great place to pause. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, everyone say and, are justified by his grace as a gift. See, that's the balance. We've all sinned, but we've all been made right. People on this side need to be reminded that they they sinned. People on this side need to be reminded that they've been made right. Sobriety is... I've sinned, but I've been made right. And because I've been made right, I can live right. Through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Again, the why. This was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance, he has, I'm sorry, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the why. Remember the scripture, Romans 3. He did it so that he could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want us to stand. The crucifixion shows us that we've been saved of sin, but it's our sin that put him there. That's the sweet spot. That's sobriety. That's where we should live. My sin put Jesus on the cross, but man, he loves me so much. He forgave me of all of them. That's how you stay in the sweet spot that we're going to cause sobriety. I want you guys to receive his mercy today, and I also want you to receive his grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. We deserve hell. We deserve death. We deserve judgment. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, which is a a place at the table the holy table of God, a position in the family of God, a royal status, a priestly status. I don't know about y'all. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that, but I get it. I get to have it, even though I don't deserve it. That's how good God is. I deserve judgment. I deserve hell. I deserve the grave. I deserve every plague that could come my way. And I'm not getting any of it. 
I don't deserve honor. I don't deserve status. I don't deserve forgiveness. But I'm getting it, and I'm getting a lot of it all the time. This is the goodness of God. If you're ready to receive that mercy and that grace, I'm glad you're here. And you do that by, according to the scripture, having faith in Jesus. So repeat this prayer after me and we'll close out. Father, in the name of Jesus, I confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead on the third day. Forgive me of my sins and make me a new person in Christ. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation, for mercy, and for grace. We love you, God.